see some people. Uh, so hello, thank you for joining today. Um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, what we do at NIH in the area of translational science. Um, and the topic of the conversation today is on rockets, space, and science, and how we are using these three things on our quest to uh, find new treatments to fight diseases. And I'm hoping to talk to you a little bit about our tissues on a chip program and even show you a few of those. But I also have some questions for you along the way. And I also have, if you have your cell phones out, um, there's a QR code at the end and I'll have you, you can take a picture of that so you can see how to find out about more information on any of this stuff too. Um, but let me go ahead and get started. And I wanna talk to you about uh, what, we, what we do um, at uh, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. We call it NCATS um, and it's the cat's meow place to be at the NIH. And what we mean by translational science is that for the most part, what the National Institutes of Health does uh, really, really well is uh, it's the largest enterprise for basic and foundational science in the world. And at the NCATS, we're part of the NIH. And we, what we do is we, um, we work on taking the findings of that basic science understanding, but we try to translate that into human applicability. So when we work with our colleagues within the NIH, we often ask them, what are the ways in which we can help you trans translate the basic findings into health solutions? And so that's really our whole goal. So what I mean by translational science is it's not really basic science. It's how we can bring that basic science into more applicability and into clinical health. And for the most part, a lot of the work that we do is around drug development. And so uh, in basic science, we largely find genes that perhaps cause disease and we can identify targets that we can then um, target in the human body to make uh, drugs or compounds that might actually help somebody's ability to fight those diseases. And uh, so, as you know, when, when COVID hit, uh, one of the biggest areas of activity was trying to find uh, drugs and medications and vaccines to help uh, fight off uh, the, the virus. And that's a lot of the work that we do is really helping to try to find drugs that can treat a variety of different diseases. And so when we talk about translational science, what that means is that there is a standing process in science called translational research. And that is the ability of, of uh, understanding, for example, I mentioned that if you have a, a gene that causes a disease, you can then target that specific gene with a particular uh, probe or a compound, uh, a chemical entity that might modify how that gene might function. It might help it uh, start to function or it might help stop it so it doesn't function as much. And that's what we call pre-discovery. And if we see that something actually does modulate some activity that we don't want to see anymore, that's when we start to turn it into perhaps, is this something that we can turn into something that can be ingested by a human or can be injected into a human that won't cause uh, a lot of side effects, that will be tolerated and safe and actually efficacious, meaning that it will indeed target that particular disease and have an effect on slowing that disease down. And then we work on preclinical development, um, and that's really honing that particular compound to make it a druggable kind of a target. And so uh, then once we do that, we can bring it into clinical development and that's clinical trials, 
uh, where we have a variety of, of different types of clinical trials, phase one, phase two, phase three. And these are largely meant to understand whether or not these compounds are safe in humans. Do, do humans tolerate them or, or and do they actually work? And so that's what the translational pipeline is all about. And what we do, what my job is, is to understand how can we make this pipeline move faster, better, and cheaper. And a lot of times we get bottlenecks along the way where going from one step to the next is really, really hard. And there are a lot of bottlenecks along the way that can be operational, they can be financial, they can even be scientific. And so for the most part, we encounter these bottlenecks. And, and if you think about a pipe and a water running through the pipe, uh, when you encounter bottlenecks, the pipe can only allow the water to go through as, as, as wide as that pipe allows. So if there are bottlenecks, it slows the water flow right down. And in, in what we try to do in my job is to attack these bottlenecks so that they're no longer there. And if we have four arrows coming into the pipeline, we want to see four arrows smoothly going through that pipeline. And so that's kind of our goal. And so a, an analogy that I like to use uh, all, all the time is, is the idea of doing math problems. So you all have to do math problems in school. And uh, sometimes I use chalkboards, I use pencil and paper, um, but in school, and uh, that was, I'm not a very good person when it comes to math. And so when I think about translational science, what was the thing that made math easier for you when you didn't have to actually use pencil and paper? What's the thing that made it easier for you? And that's what translational science is all about. So how can we develop a calculator for all of these different scientific programs to make us understand how to address these problems better, faster, and cheaper. So we're trying to find those calculators for all these different kinds of approaches that we do in health to help us understand how we can fight diseases. But it's hard. So I have a question for you. How many diseases are there? And if you can put into the chat A, B, C, or D, tell me what you think your answer is. How many diseases are there? Seeing D's, anybody else? All right, so smart group, everybody is right. They are, it's D. So it turns out that uh, there are over 10,000 diseases that we have. Now, what I should have asked you too is how many treatments do we have for those diseases? And it turns out that we only have about 500 treatments to, to meet those diseases. So if you do the math, you can do it the old fashioned way or use the calculator, but if you do the math, that's 95% of diseases that don't have a treatment. So uh, that's, that's daunting. And if we were to go at one disease at a time pace to try to find medications or treatments, treatment approaches that can help, it will take us thousands of years before we're able to get at each of these diseases. So the other problem that we're facing is that the time it takes from early development of these medicines to the time it goes into the medicine cabinet is about 10 to 15 years. So that's a long time. It also costs about $2.6 billion per medication that we're trying to, to, to meet. So a lot of time and a lot of money. So uh, when we're facing the idea that not only nine out of 10 of these therapeutic candidates actually enter clinical trials, that's a big issue. Because once they enter clinical trials, most of these compounds actually fail. 
And the reason, nine out of 10 times do they fail. And the reason that they fail is largely due to toxicity effects or they actually aren't a, being a benefit to the disease itself. So those safety and efficacy problems are a big issue. So this is one of the big challenges for us in drug development. So we want to take a translational science approach to this uh, to try to, to um, really hammer at this time it takes to develop the medications, to try to lower the costs that it costs us to actually do all of the studies to see if they work. Um, and, and for the most part, the, the, the kinds of research that we do involve using two-dimensional cell lines, so, so little cells on a, on a, on a um, petri dish, um, and then we use uh, rodents, mice, and rats largely to mimic what happens in humans. But as you probably know, mice aren't humans, rats aren't humans, and so it doesn't always work. And that's why we end up with uh, this issue where most of the drugs fail because the, the processes that we have in place just aren't really helpful for getting us to that need of safety and efficacy for that. So um, for the most part, this is true. Now, there are some times when animal models are really, really helpful. And uh, we also learn a lot from animals, and I'll get to that in the end. Right now, I want to talk to you a little bit about why we think that tissue chips and these tissues on a chip are really important for helping us do that. So what tissue chips do is, is they help us understand sort of what is, uh, how to put these little cells in a scaffold that can recreate their structure. Um, and we can do this even making sure that we, in, we have this sort of spatial and temporal relationship across the cells uh, when we put them on the chips. We want to make sure that we can perfuse them with uh, with uh, appropriate media that mimics also um, like like blood and the constituents within the blood that that um, can bathe these tissues and keep them alive and healthy. And we also want to make sure that when we're putting them on this on this chip that they're the chip's not interacting with the cells in a bad way. And so we're what we're seeing is the readout is actually because of the tests that we're doing. So we're actually able to do quite a bit with um, with these tissues on a chip, and it gives us this high resolution and real-time imaging or, or real-time approaches of way of capturing images, understanding what's happening, by, by, what's happening biochemically and what's happening in the metabolic readout as well. So these have become really important um, in our development. Now, and we, we have developed them because of um, certain technology and studies that people have done and that actually received Nobel Prize for the work that they've done. So here's Shinya uh, Yamanaka and Sir John B. Gurdon, who were responsible for, in different ways, uh, providing the research underlying the discovery that mature cells can be reprogrammed to become pluripotent. That means that differentiated cells, like, like, like cells in your blood or your skin cells, those are fully differentiated cells. But we can take those cells, and what these two Nobel Prize winners has done is they've actually deprogrammed them so that they a skin cell can actually become a completely different kind of cell. And they've figured out the chemical activities that are needed to be able to do that. And that's largely shown on this slide here, where what they've done is they've created a cocktail of proteins that they've added to cells or blood from patients. And then they can put them into IPS or, or create induced pluripotent stem cells. And those are the kinds of stem cells that then can create any cell within the human body, neural cells, cardiac cells, hepatocytes or liver cells, and pancreatic cells, et cetera, et cetera. So any cell can be created. And this work allowed us to really build these uh, tissues on a chip. So 
we also have things that are called organs, or uh, sorry, uh, 3D bioprinted tissues. So these are outside of the tissue chips, but they're actually on a, in, sort of inside a Petri dish, but they're allowed to be um, grown on top of one another. So you can actually recreate an entire set of cells that, that create the whole epidermis and dermis layer of the skin. And you can do this for other organs as well. Um, the, the other aspect that I'll, I'll talk a little bit about is, is this tissue on a chip, which is the, the one that was actually in the picture before I have with me here. And so you can see what this looks like. It's, it's, almost, it's a little bit smaller, I would say, than a thumb drive. And this is a lung on a chip model. So we can put lung cells on here and then we can infuse uh, uh, tissue culture media or we can infuse drugs to see how those drugs interact with the cells. But the great thing about this chip and what's showing on this slide here, it's, it's, it's expanding and contracting because that's how your cells work. They breathe in and they go breathe out. And so that contraction is really critical. So the kind of material that's used on this chip is flexible. And so I'm twisting it. If you can see that, I don't know if you can see that, but I'm twisting it a little bit so you can see how flexible that material is. So a vacuum can be infused in here and make the chips expand and contract. And that mimics then how these cells in the tissue chips can then react to the drugs that are being put in them to see if they're effective in fighting the kinds of things that we want them to fight. Uh, so we can use these to put normal cells on there or disease cells on there. Um, and understanding perhaps how we can do precision medicine, for, for example, on these tissues. And now we're going even further. We also have something called um, a multi-organ on a chip, and that looks something like this. It's a little bit smaller than a small cell phone, but it's got, um, it's got different uh, kinds of organs on here. This is the liver here in the beginning. This is the cardiac area, and this is the skeletal muscle area here on the bottom. And then there's also a, a motoneuron array here at the top. So we can look at a variety of different chips on one single, uh, a variety of different tissues on one single chip here at the same time. And so we can compartmentalize uh, perhaps what drugs might be effective for certain, um, for certain types of cells. And that's been really critical. So what you can imagine based on these kinds of developments that we have is you can imagine a U on a chip. And so if you're ever in need of a clinical trial, for example, before we ever put a, a, a new investigational drug in you to see whether it's safe or efficacious, maybe we can test it on a chip with your cells on it. That can help us understand if it's going to work well for you or perhaps it may not work well. If it doesn't, then maybe there are some genetic aspects or biomarkers that we can find that, that can explain why it works well or not well for you. And so these are the kinds of things that we're uh, starting to pursue moving forward, but this is still a little bit into the future, but that's kind of where we're going. So that's the idea behind the tissues on a chip. And, and I wanna give you a sense of how rockets in space play into this. Well, it turns out that when we first started developing these, this, this tissue on a chip, for example, and, and, and other tissues on a chip, uh, they were actually the size of kind of a desktop computer. They were pretty big. Um, but what we realized really quickly and what we were learning from our NASA colleagues and our NASA partners who help us with this particular project is that the astronauts who would go into space, they experience certain, um, certain health-related issues 
that uh, happened much faster because they were in a microgravity environment. And when they came back to Earth, though, and these, these are things that are listed here, like um, they happen to have um, sleep disturbances, bone demineralization, they had muscle atrophy, some cardiac problems as well, some kidney problems. But when they came back to Earth, they all reverted back to normal. So, so things kind of reverted back to how they would normally function. So what we were seeing is, or, or thinking is, boy, how can we get these tissue chips into space and see if the cellular processes on the chips actually are hastened or made faster by, um, by that microgravity environment? So we had to figure out, we had to work with our NASA colleagues and scientists who were material scientists, but also engineers to figure out how to get it to something this size, because you don't have a lot of space in the space station to be able to do these kinds of experiments. So we worked very closely with our NASA colleagues to really get it down to these kinds of smaller um, uh, testing devices to be able to do this. And we've done a couple of tests, uh, it was sending these tissue chips into space to understand how we can address these particular health related problems. And if we can do that, we're kind of sending people up into space, but they're represented on these chips. And so then we can compare experiments that are done in space with experiments that are done in the same way, but in on Earth um, in, in full gravity mode. And, and so that's exactly what we try to do. And so we sent tissue chips up into space. Here's the rocket where they're going up. And here's Katie, Astro Katie, who's doing some experiments um, on the um, space station. And then we have another image here at the bottom, which is uh, the tissue chips uh, from one of our experiments that came back down and we were able to analyze those. And so I wanna give you a sense of what that analysis looked like. So for one of these experiments, and we have, we have a, a several of them in play right now, but this is one that came back um, uh, first, uh, this was looking at how microgravity can mimic immune-related cells and aging. How, how do immune cells age? And we found that when, when these tissue chips were in the, in the microgravity environment, they aged in just 15 days, whereas on Earth, this could take uh, years. So we did, in fact, see that even on these tissue chips, we saw the same effects happening of, the, of that microgravity environment really hastening these kinds of health-related outcomes. And so uh, the G here stands for ground and the F stands for flight. And so we saw these different biomarkers for aging uh, show up a little bit more in the flight uh, side of the experiments than we did on the ground side of the experiments. And the same thing happened when we were looking at cardiac issues. So we looked at heart tissues in the same way and what we found is, is there, the twitch force of cardiac muscles actually tended to decline in space and uh, uh, much more than that over that that was done on the gravity uh, here on Earth. So we're finding really, uh, uh, really fascinating things using these tissue chips in space to help us understand um, very specific issues related to um, uh, uh, types of diseases that affect these different organs um, so that now can, we can use these to start to develop uh, therapies for those specific diseases and start to test them again on these tissue chips in very specific ways. So we're very excited about this program. So that's one thing that I want to talk about in terms of, of therapeutics. I also wanted to talk about how we diagnose diseases as well. And so I wanted to tell you just about another program that we have um, that, that is starting to sniff out ways to develop new diagnostic strategies. So here's another question for you. 
Um, what can we learn from evolution in the animal kingdom? And so here's the question is, which animal has the best sense of smell? So what do you have in chat? And also I'm gonna send you some videos too uh, that you can look at websites and videos for tissue chips. I'll tell you that while you're thinking about which animal has the best sense of smell. Shark, pig, dog. Snake. Oh, you guys are awesome. Okay, so I hope you're not using Google to help you here because that's cheap. But you know, it's kind of it's in cat's name. You're you're looking at ways to make it go faster. So I appreciate that. Um, okay, so here, here's what we have. Elephants is number one. Sharks is number two. Bears is number three. Surprisingly, dogs is number four. I thought it was actually higher than that, but dogs is number four. Snakes is number five. Kiwis. Birds, number six, I know. Turkey vultures, but here's the most surprising one on the list, silk moths. So it turns out that silk moths has, have a lot of, actually uh, scent receptors on their antennae. They don't have noses, but they have them on their antennae and that's to help them find mates. So it's interesting that silk moths on their antennae have. Rats and then cows. So cows is number 10. Um, so we could talk about this until the cows come home because cows is number 10. So now we have that under our belt. Uh, I want to give you a little sense of why dogs are important to us for this next, uh, segment here. So for, for the, the, the dogs turn out that, that they have 220 million scent receptors, whereas humans only have 5 million and they are 10,000 more accurate 10,000 times more accurate than humans they can sniff out a single drop of liquid in the the uh, size of 20 olympic sized swimming pools and and if you think about it that um they take about uh they take in about 300 times per minute in these little short breaths they they can sense these new odor particles or volatile organic compounds and so that's why we use dogs so much to sniff out explosive narcotics uh search and rescue and they can even detect things like cancer and Parkinson's just by sniffing uh, people to understand how, if they might have something like disease. And so low blood sugar, things of that uh, nature. Um, they can even detect people who, who are about to have a seizure. So it's really fascinating what they can do. And um, why am I saying this to you? Well, it, it turns out that there's a few limitations with dogs, so we can't use them for everything. Breeds are different. They're, it takes a lot to train them, very expensive. So one thing that we want to do is we want to create like a tricorder that you've seen on Star Trek um, to actually be able to sniff or, or create sense to develop non-invasive diagnostic devices that can provide very rapid and accurate diagnoses for a variety of medical conditions. And uh, this will help us understand um, what we can what what we can detect in terms of perhaps preliminary disease before you even know you might have it, or even disease progression. So this is really important technology that we're working on. Now. So uh, I'm just going to end there and um, tell you these are just some key takeaways. But um, in translational science, what we're trying to do is we're trying to learn from what nature provides us. We're trying to figure out, work with our partners uh, to, to understand how to address uh, scientific problems. 
Um, and, and that's really our main goal. And I wanted to leave you with a QR code to our website in case you're interested in other kinds of educational materials or interests uh, within NCAT. So the website is down here below as well as a QR code so you can take a photo of that. Um, we, uh, translational science needs uh, people thinking about STEM. So this is all, this is right up your alley. And I hope you consider a career in uh, translational science. Um, so with that, any questions? Can I entertain any questions? I should have known the PJK. Naked mole rat. Uh, yeah, right. Okay, very good. So yeah, you guys were pretty pretty close on those animals. Let's see. I'm scrolling through. Scrolling through here. How can they find cancer? Uh, so sometimes cancers uh, they they can change the nature of cells within our body, and they might emit various kinds of chemicals. And those chemicals can then actually be, um, as I said, dogs can sniff 20, put together 20 Olympic size swimming pools, one drop in that size of water, they can detect that. So the volatile compounds that are emitted by our own cells, when they change, can give off a different odor. And so they can alert us to, uh, to, to changes in that, in that cellular architecture. And that's how we can find uh, different diseases like cancer. I see hands. 